this is what I did. If you know anybody whose son came back home, I was in the process of trying to put them back together before mama saw all the ugly that was on them. Or if I couldn't get all the ugly off, I mean scars and all this stuff. If I couldn't get all that off of them, then I make a phone call to the mom and say, this is what you're gonna be expecting when you see, so mom would not pass out. That's what we did. Connie Love Edwards was an Army nurse in Vietnam over half a century ago. In the decades since, she has worked to bring recognition and honor to women who have served in the military. She is not alone in that effort. After a pandemic delay of a year, a plane load of more than 90 female veterans will fly to Washington, D.C. for a day of honor and thanks. It's called Operation Her Story. It's the proud work of retired Air Force Master Sergeant Ginny Narset and others who've long felt that the contributions and sacrifice of women in the military are too often ignored or overlooked. The Operation Her Story flight, conducted in concert with Honor Flight Chicago, is meant to shine the spotlight on the women who've given so much in time of war like nurse Connie Love Edwards, who after Vietnam got her doctorate in public health and retired from the Army as a colonel. Connie will be on that flight. This is her story. I want to ask you about the beginning of your military career, but perhaps that's best prefaced by understanding where you grew up and when. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. And so I was confronted with the white, white fountain and the colored fountains and the colored bathroom and the white bathroom. In the back of the bus. And then I was, it was an ultimatum given to me by my parents. You will get out of here. And the way you get out of here is you get educated. So that's what I did. And there were nine of us in my family. My daddy, would, and I was the first to go to college. But his ultimatum was, you said you're going to be there four years. Look at all these. You got four behind you. <laughs> do what you got to do in four years. So this is Tuskegee University. Yeah. You so go the to. Air Force, the Navy, Army, everybody came up and they says, they gave us their spill. We didn't know they were looking for nurses for Vietnam, though. They didn't tell us that. Right. They just told us how much paycheck we could get. And so... When they offered that, and there were nine of us in my class who decided that we were going to go, because the whole time we were at Tuskegee was uh, Birmingham. Birmingham was Birmingham, and I've been through all that stuff. And so when I got to Tuskegee, and, and there were nine, the class before us had had about ten nurses who joined up, and so we joined up too. And uh, let me come back to Birmingham just so everyone yeah. understands. Three little girls were killed when the church was bombed. Four. Four, okay. And then there were three boys that were killed later on, too. Okay, Yeah. all right. But You're the, in the heart of the segregated South, arguably the heart. Right? Oh, yeah, I was in walking distance to where they were killed. Were you? And some of the people who got killed, they were 
father, I mean, friends of the family or maybe church members or whatever. So a lot of the people who uh, were, what, that you know about, we knew them as friends. So you're at Tuskegee and you decide to take advantage of this military help. You don't know Vietnam is part of the equation. When did you find that out? When I got to basic. <laughs> this was in my sophomore year. Okay. And uh, if you joined up at the end of your sophomore year, you would be, they would pay for the next two years of your education. And we were attached to the ROTC. Mm-hmm. We were in what they called the United States Army Student Nurse Corps. And I didn't know until I was out that we were actually on active duty while we were in college. You're active duty then. And when do you finally get orders that say to you specifically, you're going to Vietnam and here's what you're going to do when you get there? Well, my first surprise order came while I was one month after I graduated from nursing. And then I had a job with some kind of, it was a community action program. And for, I worked for one month. It was $500 a month. We thought that was pretty good. While I was there, one month after I was got that $500 check, I got my mother called me and says, something came here. Somebody called from the recruiting station down there that says something about you got to go to the military. So I called them. I had one week to get away from Tuskegee, get to Birmingham, and go on active duty. We were brand-new nurses. You had to stay stateside for a year. And then you can go to Vietnam. And a part of that year was, they call it processing for overseas replacement. So they put a simulated Vietnam out in the boonies somewhere. But I got my hospital experience as well. I was seeing patients that was coming back from Vietnam. And that's when we would get in the feel of what kind of injuries they were having and whatever. And all of a sudden I get this order to Vietnam. Again, I got 30 days to get there. And I cried because I thought maybe somebody had, it was a punishment to go to Vietnam. By that time, I'd been promoted, and one of the men who was with me, they called me into the general's office. I thought I was in big trouble. But what they were calling me in there for was to promote me to the next step. And when I got back, they were so hostile to me. And one of them actually volunteered to go to Vietnam because he was not gonna, when I got promoted, I became the head nurse. He was not gonna work under no nigger nurse. (laughs) I didn't volunteer to go to Vietnam. But one of the things we heard was that you don't volunteer, once you're in the military, you volunteer to go in, everything else, you're taking orders. So I got to Vietnam. I mean, that was a trauma just getting there. There were six other women on the, five other women on the plane. We were dressed up in uniform. You always had to wear a uniform. By that time, they said you could wear it at least at your knee. I'm sitting on this plane with all of these men, and you need to go to sleep, and you gotta be upright and not lean on that person next to you. So when we got to the place, they call it the replacement center in Vietnam. They had this big thing that was a Quonson hut where the airplanes drive into, and that's where they took us into that. All I could see was lizards all over the place. There was 
six females. Everybody else was males. They had no assignments for us when I got there, except that we were going to replace some people. They took me over to the field hospital in Saigon. So there I stay three days in that place. I think they put me there at the hospital because I was in this replacement center and I go out to take a shower. And you're out there in midday because you couldn't take the shower until the water got warmed up from the sun. And when I got in there, coming out, I had a little shorty pajamas on. A big frog hit me. And I says, oh, I scream. And all these men come running from everywhere. And I, they kept, where is he, where is he? And I says, over there, over there. So they're looking under the building. They were looking for a VC. <laughs> and when I told them, it was the, I said, he was that big. It's and I frog. was the laughing stock of that place for oh, five days. Oh, I bet they days. gave it to you for a while. Huh? <laughs> and every time they'd see me, there goes the frog lady. <laughs> Tell me where your head was at when you arrived there. Well, I mean, were you? Were, I was 23 years old. Were you prepared to no. see the things that you were going to see? That a part of that, I was more prepared than a lot of people were because while I was at Fort Fort, um, I was at William Beaumont General Hospital, but Fort Bliss was down the road from there, and that overseas replacement was that. You know, so it was hot in San Antonio. They simulated Vietnam in, in um, El Paso for us. And you dealt with a lot of the injured who were coming home, so you had some familiarity with the kinds of wounds and mental state of the... Yeah, even before I got to college, I had been doing wounds because I'm from Birmingham, remember? Yes. And the riots were always there. We had a Red Cross class, but we also had emergency classes. They would send us little nursing students out there to triage and do all those things. So we had seen a lot before I was even a nurse. You know, I think they prepared us well at the school of what we were gonna be expecting. So by the time I got to Vietnam or El Paso, seeing wounds like that, I'd seen them in Birmingham already. Can, can you, you're at the 24th EVAC unit, you're north of Saigon. You're surgical, part of the surgical team? Yeah. No, I was on what they call med surge. I was not in the operating room. Before us, they come into the emergency room, they go to the operating room, they go to recovery, and then I was med surge number one. So by the time I got them, they would have been already through some of those other people. Can you walk me through what a typical day would be for you? 12-hour oh, shifts, six days a week. And you never knew what to do with 12 hours in between. So we just worked. But when you go home, after a while, we learned that you don't take off the uniform because you never know when you got to go to the bunker. I went to the bunker one time in, in shorty pajamas, and I said, I never want to do that again. <laughs> so we all decided we're just going to sleep in the uniform. And then you leave your boots out, and then you turn them over to make sure you don't have a lizard or a 
scorpion in there before you put them on. But during the day, we're taking care of people. Sometimes you'd have, when you see the helicopter come out, we would get assigned to go and meet the helicopter. So that was your job, a part, your extra job. So if we hear uh, helicopters coming in with six or, and then before you know it, there's 10 on the helicopter. And so we go run to the helicopter. So you're, you're running out to meet them when they're arriving. Yeah, right? you run out to the helicopter, you get them off. And then you run out in. So you're seeing you're seeing soldiers come out of the field, fresh wounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been patched up in the field, presumably, but you're getting them at an early stage. Yeah, and then we have to, because that was their first, then we take them up to the ER and then the, give them over to the ER nurse, and they would triage them. By the time I got them, they would have been through surgery and awake and alert and all that. Um, we were supposed to get them well enough or stable enough that they could fly out to Japan. You're getting them at a point when they are conscious and alert and they realize what's happened to them. And a lot of them have lost limbs, I presume, and they have life-changing injuries. So not only are you a nurse, but you're a mental health counselor too, I suspect, are you not? Oh yeah, you're also mama. Your mama. <laughs> I was called mama so many times by these people. I'm 23 and I got another 18-year-old calling me mama. One of my trips to the helicopter, we got this patient. His name was Roy Bailey. When he came in, his face was looking like a dirty mop. You know, his face had been just torn up. And it was in strings. About five days later, I got him as a patient. He was all bandaged up, his face. Me and this corpsman went to the side and we just prayed, Lord, we don't see nothing wrong with this man except his face, and he's alive. And for the first time in my life, we prayed for somebody to die. But he did, he did not die. And this was 1968 when he got hit. But he was 18, and he had only been in the country five days. When we were in Washington, D.C. to put in the Women's Memorial. So this is now 1993. I saw him, and it was down the street, and then somebody, some, well, the TV people were picking up everything. How did you know that was him? And I says, I saw him with Captain Tanaka. That was the ER nurse who had been there. And I says, I saw that face. That was the first time I'd seen his face uncovered, but looking at it the way it was, I knew that was Roy. And so we had a big thing. That was one of my most memorable patients. You're there during the Tet Offensive. I was. Which was an awful time. Yeah. And I wonder if you felt overwhelmed with the number of soldiers who were coming in and needed immediate care. Yeah, I was overwhelmed. But the one thing that I told people, we had a slow period, and a lot of the nurses would be crying over what they did. I said, did you all recognize that when it was overwhelmingly busy, we didn't have time to feel sorry for ourselves and to cry? So I didn't do a whole lot of crying over there because that whole time was really busy. And you know, you get a little ugly when you cry. And so I didn't want to do that. I mean, because the guys would come in every, you know, it was like you still have your little modesty about you. But then if you cry and you, you can't do your work and you can't think, I mean, you're just moving from one to the other and you just got to 
get the blood, do what you got to do, uh, clean did, clean did, out trachs and all that other stuff. But did you have private moments when you thought, this is crazy? I don't know if I can handle this, or were you fully confident that you could handle a load? I guess because I was young, and I had been from Birmingham, and we had to do that all night, and you, you know, a bomb comes and you get knocked out of your bed. I was somewhat not afraid, but one of the things that I was blessed with, a chaplain had given us, and they said, this is the soldier's prayer. It was the 91st Psalm. I would always, I didn't remember the whole thing, but they say, if you're under the shadow of the Almighty, and then you get down a few other verses, it says a thousand will fall at my right side, but it's not going to touch me. I would just say it. And I'd say it to the rest of the folk. I think that's what kind of kept us. And then we had chaplains there. One time when I looked like I, we got slow, and I started thinking about what was going on, one of the chaplains had me to meet him in the morgue. And I says, okay. And he says, I don't, we, there was some that had body parts and then there was some that had bodies. I can't remember that chaplain, but we remembered people inside of there is some mother's son or some kid's dad or whatever. And we would pray for them and we'd pray that the body parts get put back to whoever they belong to or whatever. We just sat down on a, on a little bench in there and I guess he must have had me in there for about two hours. And then we go back to the ward and he says, you know, we just have to be thankful that the ones you got to spend the rest of these 12 hours with, at least you can talk to them and some of them may talk back to you. Was that good therapy for you? I think it was. I lost one patient, I think died on my floor and it was a baby that had been burned but Sammy is Sammy Young I was trying to think of that name on the wall he died at the hospital but he was on another unit he was called when we got him he was unknown and I said that was the most traumatic expression to me that I have to take care of somebody and the only name he has is unknown but for Sammy somebody over there their people, when they've lost somebody and they got a chance, they would come looking for them. And somebody did come. And so before he left our hospital, he had his name. And you found it on the wall. Yeah. Mm August of 68, did you come home to a country that you didn't recognize? Because Oh, let me tell you about that one. One of my patients who had sent me his picture, he says, when you, come to Cal when you get to San Francisco, I will meet you at the airport, and I'll take you out to lunch. So he was at the airport. I'm in uniform, and he had brought his mom and dad, and he come back a-crying, and he says, I'm sorry, I can't take you to lunch. My parents said they ain't taking no nigger to lunch. This is okay. So I went on to, San, uh, to uh, Los Angeles and I visited a friend of mine, but I didn't get that lunch that day from that patient who thought that I was so great to him. And that's what I came, that was, I greeted that. We also greeted um, the hippies were at the airport 
throwing eggs and tomatoes and all that stuff at us. And you were in uniform then? Oh, you always traveled okay. in uniform. Okay. Let me come back just for a moment to the issue of race and how it rears its ugly head when you're in the field of battle. You had an incident, and it came after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Oh, you know about that. Okay. Yeah. Well, in the, in the cafeteria, after you get your malaria tablets, basically what you're seeing in there is the United States flag, and then you're seeing the Confederate flag. One of the people that I had gone to basic with was sitting in there, and he said, after Martin Luther King was killed, and we heard that over the loudspeaker in the cafeteria, and I go to put my little tray down with him, to sit with him, because I knew who he was. All we need now to do is get rid of Stokey Carmichael and Rap Brown. And I took my tray and I hit him, bam! And before you know it, they call in the MP on me. <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh. And then you might get an article 15, and I thought, oh. And then Honky, I forget his name. His, his name was something that sounded like Honky. And he, he jumped up and he says, oh, no, 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 no. That's my friend. I should not have said that. And so he protected me, and he, he followed. He says, you all got to go. You got to go. She did what she was supposed to do. <laughs> and so he came to my rescue. <laughs> it was, well, that it had was a funny. happy ending. Oh, I still got called into the chief nurse's office about controlling so myself. Captain, you got to hold your temper. When you come back, you get reacclimated to the best of your ability here, and life, life goes on, and and you. You find out later on, I think after talking to your mom, that she had called the Pentagon trying to find out where you were in okay. Vietnam. Tell me that story. It was not my mom who called. It was the, uh, the sister of a patient that I had. And that's okay. another patient that I kept up with afterward, um, but I didn't communicate with him. He was paralyzed from neck down. His sister called because he wanted to see me. His sister had called, and the Pentagon told them that they didn't have any women in Vietnam. How could the Pentagon not know that there are women in Vietnam? There were 11,000 women in Vietnam. Over well, a when I got of time. some of these places have civilians, and I don't, they may have encountered a civilian, and a lot of people have a job, but they don't know everything that they need to know to go along with that job. So I said, well, it was just one of those incidents. Maybe somebody did tell them that they didn't have any women in Vietnam. But later on, you have... Because most of them didn't see... They didn't see the women in Vietnam. Right, which leads me to another story. Your daughter goes to school, and tell me that one. Okay, she was about three or four. She's at preschool, and she comes home crying. They had career day even for the pre preschoolers and kindergartners. I had taken in a, a skeleton because they had other nurses who can talk about regular nursing. So I said, I'll tell them about military nursing. So I was all dressed up in my military uniform. She's crying, CJ's daddy said, you a big old liar. And I call and she's still crying. And I says, well, you know, I'm not a liar. What did he say? He said, you didn't go to no Vietnam. And I says, okay, well, I called the principal of the preschool. And I asked her, I said, did this really occur? 
did you witness? She says, yeah, I witnessed it, but I didn't know what to tell him. But I said, well, tell me this. What time does CJ's dad come to school <laughs> to pick up his kid? And so when he came in, I told, I introduced myself to him, and I said, you know what? I heard you say that there were no women in Vietnam. We talked for a little bit, and I says, I had taken with me, you know, papers and all that kind of stuff. So we, we got to chat more after that, so he was a bit more respectable after that. But it so that's how I could see the person at the Pentagon maybe saying that. I don't know whether that was a new person who hadn't been oriented or whatever, but he says, I was somewhere for two, and I heard that a lot though. They didn't have women in Vietnam. I says, I was somewhere for 12 months. <laughs> and it was in a land that I did not know. Let me bring you forward to 1985, and you're working with the late Tom Stack and a number of other people. And he was very passionate about the notion that the Vietnam vet had come back and no one had paid much attention, or when they did, it was a very hostile reaction. So he wanted to start a welcome home thing, which turned out, I think, probably far beyond your expectations, at least in terms of the number of people who showed up. What, 300,000 oh, yeah. people? I went to this meeting, and it was I had never been in the meeting with veterans before. Not like that. They were a bunch of angry people, all they wanted to do was just give us a picnic somewhere. And so there I am, the, most of them were men, and so I'm in there, I'm one of few women. I knew where a couple Red Cross people were, but I knew what they had done. So I was able to convince them that they should include the other women, because I said, you know, the Red Cross women were actually out there in the boonies. And I says, I wasn't out there in the boonies. So I give credit to a lot of the people who were out there. And I said, they saw more than I did. We found out from Tom that New York had done a welcome home. And that's what spared the group in Chicago to be number two. When you look back on that day now, do you think it had a, an impact on you and all the people who were there? Oh yeah, I had a good one. The one thing that really got me at the parade, well first I get pulled on this truck with all these people. I missed out with Westmore to march because I was supposed to be at the head of the parade and I was not. I was mad with the husband because he said he had a camera, but he had the camera with no film in it. And so I don't have pictures that I trusted that he was gonna be taken. And I got off, but there was this one woman while we were walking somewhere. I, I don't know whether it was after I'd gotten out of the parade or before, but she was a tall black woman. And she gave me the hug, because she said some, she was irritated with some of the stuff she'd heard too. She says, everybody talking about too little, too late. But I'm gonna tell you, little sweetie, I said, I appreciate you so much. And I said, well, why you appreciate me? She says, but if I had seen you 
1975, I would have stabbed you. And she still had me in a hug. And I says, and why was that? And she said, I heard that it was you nurses over there who made, when my husband came back, he didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I thought you all had taken his heart. And but what she had found through hearing about the parade and the parade itself, that we didn't take away her husband, but it was us who had tried to put her husband back together. And she did not know that her husband was suffering from PTSD. And even in 1986, they were just beginning to call it PTSD because it had not gone into the medical, uh, the DSM, right? And so that made me feel okay. But while that woman had me hugging and telling me what she would have done to me if that was there, I was beginning to see where people were saying, you know, because we used to hear that kind of stuff. Even after the parade, a lot of people didn't understand. But I think having New York had one before, Chicago had one, and I think it was Florida that wanted to have one after us. Well, we felt like that was a time of healing for civilians in America because we had heard some nasty stuff. I think even at that New York parade, and you had men in wheelchairs with no legs, and on the side you're hearing some woman, why don't you bombs go somewhere and get yourselves a job? But we, I didn't hear any of that in Chicago. And it was important to people all over the world to come to, to Chicago. And I didn't know until after the parade was over how many people actually came. Let me bring you forward to today. So now comes Operation Her Story. Okay which is about the women who served. And you've been to DC before, you've been to the, the wall, you've been to a variety of things. So you know about that, but this is gonna be a different experience for you. How so? Mainly because they want to honor the women who served. I gave up my time to go on the honor flights before because I wanted to give up. I didn't want to take up a seat for one of the men because that's what they were saying. We are beginning to die pretty fast too. So I didn't feel like I needed to go there because they're going to take them to see the museums. I I had been with a group that actually fought to get that that women's uh, monument put up. Going there to see a monument is really not what I wanted to do but to go with the women who did. And one thing for me, I did not see any enlisted women there. But they came right after, I think they started coming into the area where I was in 1968, and they came just about the time that I did. Because all the women that I saw when I was in Vietnam were officers. So what do you say to all of your sisters who are going to be on this flight and on this day? What's your message to them, and what do you expect to hear from them? I'd like to hear what they did. (laughs) 
and how they survived some of the stuff that was going on. I'd like to know where they were. And the message to them is, you know, it went, it was hard, but one of the processes that we did, we said that we think Vietnam vets started the healing in America and that we want to continue to hold on that no other group of people will go through what we went through because we're going to be there. But as we are, know that most of us are approaching 80, that we want the younger ones to know that each group needs to fight for the other group. And so I assume that one day, if they keep her story going, they're going to have some Iraqi and Afghanistan vets go. And hopefully they'll take over and make sure everybody else is okay with that. One time I was on a program, and on this program they had me, because that we were the last war. They had a Korean vet, and we had the World War II vets. Mm -hmm. As all of us are telling the story, we all realized that we were standing on the shoulders of the women who had gone before us. And I think that's the message that I'd like to leave with the people is that they, our shoulders are there for somebody else to stand on because you never know when you're going to have another war. But we appreciate the people who went before us. You know what I think I expect when I get back? And it may be a little different now. When they do, the, I've, I've met some of the honor flights when they come back, it's how they welcome them home when they come back. I think that's what I'm looking forward to. Because I didn't get that. I wasn't expecting it really because I didn't know it. I didn't feel like anybody was gonna welcome me except my little friend in San Francisco whose parent wouldn't take me to lunch because I was black. I'm, a, I'm, I'm looking for that. Our thanks and congratulations to the women veterans who, over the years, have played such a vital, though often unsung, role in our national defense. And a salute to all those who've made Operation Her Story a reality. We hope you found today's podcast to be moving and meaningful. If you did, we'd invite you to share it and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.